Welcome back to Brain Ablaze, a weekly podcast about epilepsy by people with epilepsy for everyone. I'm your host, David Clifford. In this episode, we describe the different generations of anti-seizure medications. We talk through the differences between the generations, the medical breakthroughs that created them, and some stories behind our favorite medications. If you're new to Brain Ablaze, I just want to state that I'm not a medical expert. I'm just someone that has struggled with the ins and outs of epilepsy for almost three decades. In this episode, my inexperience is going to be even more apparent as I'm sure to get some of these medication names incorrect. Before we start, the history of epilepsy is as hard to swallow as a handful of anti-seizure medication pills. When one combines the details of pharmaceutical testing, it becomes even more difficult. Looking past the curtain in any industry reveals a lot. And for this reason, we're marking this episode as PG-13. And while you're at it, can you do us a favor? Subscribe to our podcast on the platform you're choosing. Give us a five-star rating and leave us a review. One small click really does help. Two people with epilepsy can't get very far in a conversation before we start talking medications and side effects. An estimated 70% of us can control our seizures through medication alone. However, only a tiny percentage of us stick to the very first medication that was prescribed. Anti-seizure medications are notoriously hit or miss for each one of us. Up until the 1800s, medicinal effects of chemicals were discovered serendipitously. One doctor found it, tested it on his patients, and spread the information through word of mouth. It was extremely slow going as patients who were willing to take and experimental drugs often had the most serious conditions with nothing to lose. Doctors discovered new medications by happenstance. Thus was the case for the very first anti-seizure medication, potassium bromide, in 1857. Sir Charles Lockock was an English obstetrician. Wait, did he say obstetrician? Yes. He and many of his colleagues shared a theory that epilepsy was caused by excess masturbation and was associated with menstrual periods. After using potassium bromide on himself, he noticed the chemical made him impotent. He started using it on his female patients and, quote, successfully stopped epileptic seizures on 14 out of 15 of his patients, end quote. The word about potassium bromide spread to Sir William Gowers, a British neurologist working out of the National Hospital for the Paralyzed and Epileptics, Queen Square, London now the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery. Oh good, a neurologist. Sir Gower studied the effects of potassium bromide in detail, gave it legitimacy as an anticonvulsant, and popularized its use. Later in 1892, Gowers was one of the founding members of the National Society for Employment of Epileptics, or the Epilepsy Society. In fact, anyone who has visited the Epilepsy Society's Chalfrit Center will have been to the Sir Williams Gowers building. Though the use of potassium bromide as an anti-seizure medication was revolutionary, Potassium bromide had its own flaws. It has tremendous and varying side effects. In fact, the side effects are so worrisome that potassium bromide has never been approved by the FDA for use in humans. The first anticonvulsant chemical was synthesized or created in 1882 by Beverly S. Burton. Unfortunately, she didn't realize the anticonvulsant effects of the chemical, but we will talk about that more later. The world had to wait an astonishingly long 30 years until 1912 when a German psychiatrist Alfred Hauptmann was having trouble sleeping. You see, his patients who had epilepsy kept waking him up each night with their nocturnal seizures. So fed up with a lack of sleep, he began to use a light sedative that was commonly available at the time, phenobarbital, to make sure that they and he could get some sleep. After a while, he noticed that his patients were not only getting better sleep, but also had a reduced incidence of their seizures. In fact, some actually graduated from his care to join the workforce and have real jobs. This was a huge step forward as people with epilepsy at the time were often thought of as lost souls. The first generation of anti-seizure medications really started in the 1930s. 
In the years leading to World War II, the process we used to find new anti-seizure medications went through a revolutionary overhaul. Animal testing slowly became more involved. After World War II, the United States was inundated with soldiers returning from combat with epilepsy, traumatic brain injuries, PTSD, and a batch of other neurological conditions. In 1950, the United States created the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke, or NINES, to formally investigate neurological issues. NINES quickly adopted the animal model testing that existed before the war. However, there was still no unified method between all the companies manufacturing pharmaceuticals. Every company did their own testing completely differently. It sounds harsh, but the testing of animals provided a huge step forward in the discovery of anti-seizure medications for us humans who have epilepsy. First, it expanded the pure number of people that could make breakthrough epilepsy treatments. Suddenly, a generation of chemists and neuroscientists working in conjunction with NINES and on behalf of pharmaceutical companies could study the effects of new chemicals before they were introduced to humans. It allowed for a division of labor. Neurologists refocused on treating their human patients who had epilepsy. Neuroscientists performed testing and the chemists could synthesize new chemicals. The dawn of the second generation of anti-seizure medications came with a breakthrough in 1957, right around the time that Elvis controlled the airways. In April that year, an observant chemist, Earl Reeder, while cleaning a lab at the pharmaceutical company Hoffman La Roche, found two bottles filled with the results of old experiments. A mindful reader brought the once forgotten bottles to the attention of his employer, Dr. Leo Starnbach a Polish-American chemist. After tinkering with the structure of the compound a bit, Sternbach set off the new version for basic pharmaceutical testing. Dr. Sternbach and his colleagues were surprised to discover that it tranquilized a multitude of animal models with the unusual effect that the animals remained alert. Dr. Sternbach then did something that decades later he would warn anyone else not to do. He tested the chemical on himself. When he noticed the chemical gave him a calming effect, he knew that he was onto something. And he was. Dr. Sternbach's tinkering led to a whole new class of medications called benzodiazepines. You might not recognize the benzodiazepines moniker, or even benzos as they are commonly called, but you probably know at least one benzodiazepine, Valium. Prescriptions for Valium became so common through the 1960s that even the legendary Rolling Stones wrote a hit song about it called Mother's Little Helper. Many benzodiazepines are still used against seizures today. In fact, three, diazepam, or Valium, Lorazepam, or Ativan, Midazolam, or Versed, are still the go-to tools for treating status epilepticus. Remember that anticonvulsant chemical that we glossed over when we discussed 1882? Uh, no. Don't you remember? It was the chemical that was created by Beverly S. Burton. Oh yeah! He said he would talk about it later. Gotcha. Well, here's when we come back to it. By 1962, testing anti-seizure medications on animal models became even more influential and fruitful. In that year, the French researcher Perret Aymard started testing the chemical that Beverly S. Burton synthesized. The chemical, valporic acid, is known as Depakote today. In 1975, the higher-ups at Nines had realized just how slow testing was. After 20 years, they produced only a handful of anti-seizure medications. The bright minds at Nines finally realized that they needed a unified system to test chemicals quickly. They started the third generation of anticonvulsant medications by creating the Anticonvulsant Screening Program, or ASP. Rather than requiring each pharmaceutical company to have their own testing program, the ASP is used to test the possible new chemicals. 
According to one paper about the ASP, over the course of its history, the screening program has tested over 32,000 compounds submitted from more than 600 participants. The program has been truly international in scope, with 38 countries represented it. In 2015, the ASP was renamed the Epilepsy Therapy Screening Program, or ETSP, to include validation of treatment approaches for epilepsy and not just medications. Moving the testing from the pharmaceutical companies to a government-sponsored program allowed the U.S. to create regulations that dictated what types and intensity of side effects are officially acceptable. All this history is good, David, but what does it all mean for us? Yeah, are the newer medications better than the older medications? We shouldn't think of it like that. Each medication affects our brain chemistry differently. Is a hammer better than a screwdriver? It is better to have more tools so our neurologists can better determine if we fit in that 70% of us that can control our seizures through medication alone. It's always better to talk to your neurologist or epileptologist about what medication is right for you. They understand the full story. They know your background, your type of epilepsy, and how a particular medication might affect you. Did you have experience with some of the medications we covered in this episode? We would love to hear your story. You can always reach out to us via email at socialbrainblaze.com. See you next time.